five, four, three, two, one, zero. All engine running. Liftoff. We have a liftoff. Podcast on the internet. The Great Blue Oyster Cult. I tried to find a, an appropriate and fitting song for today that would fit into the theme. I always try to find a song that fits into a theme. And I found a song. But I didn't find the appropriate video to go along with the song. It's a good song. But I like to provide some visuals. It's a visual medium. And if you're listening on the podcast, I actually trim the song out uh, due to some pernicious licensing issues that could perhaps be legally compromising for yours truly. Uh, so that's why I try to find a visual component to the song because people are here and they're watching and listening. So don't fear the Reaper blue oyster cult. You know, we're just um, getting ready to leave Capricorn with the sun Pluto conjunction, which is very Reaper esque. The Reaper is connected to the sign of Capricorn. The Reaper, of course, wielding the scythe the scythe that cuts the uh, cuts the crops down, right? The time of growing is over. The time of the fallow land, dark skies, and life going underground is really what's on the table. So January and February really are, and even parts of March, right? These three months, January, February, and up to the middle part of March are really a season of death. If you want to wrap your head around it, right? A season of death. And it's the way it's supposed to be. This is, this is how the natural cycles work. So when we have things like New Year's resolutions, which can seem rather arbitrary based on the calendrical year versus the astrological year, um, people are always making resolutions of, oh, I'm going to get in better shape. I'm going to lose weight. I'm going to go on a diet. Those are all related to Saturn. Those are all related to Capricorn, trimming, cutting getting rid of the excess, the largesse, right? All in alignment with this idea that this month and this time and 
over the course even of the next few months is the time of the scythe and the cutting away and understanding the reality of in this plane our finite existence unless of course you have uh, found the key to eternal youth either through uh, the outright genetic theft of another individual or through some other more uh, electrical and alchemical means. So we begin to look at this time of year through that dark lens. And it's appropriate. And yes, some people ride high in the hope of beginning anew and starting anew and applying some Capricornian intention, some Capricornian elbow grease to start new patterns and new rhythms, new cycles. And yes, part of that is true, especially as you cut away and wipe away the old ones that are no longer fitting and useful. So there is some truth to that. But the other part of the equation is also true. And that's where we find ourselves today on the 18th of January, 2023, with the Sun-Pluto conjunction in Capricorn. And this show today is uh, in part dedicated to that. And some of the things that I'm going to share with you today uh, may be potentially distasteful to people. Um, it may be considered to be xenophobic to people. But the way that I'm hopefully going to paint this picture is far more inclusive than one might garner at first glance. Because at first glance, it seems to uh, be a a more common lament that is going from a whisper to a somewhat audible cry in the dark. Now, that may sound quite dramatic, uh, and perhaps it is, but it is in line with the rhythm and the time of our times. So I'm going to get into some material today that hopefully by the end of today's stream, and if you're listening on the podcast, you'll have something to think about. And, you know, I try to round things off with the show so that you don't walk away from it. Like, you know, my guts have just been spilled open and I don't know what to do. And I'll attempt to do that today, but I don't really have, uh, a port of hope as a destination right now. Maybe over the course of the show, it will reveal itself to me and I'll steer our ship of fools here into a safe harbor. All right, set the stage. So um, one of the things that can help you stay balanced through a time of dark epiphanies, and I'm a firm believer of this, is CBD. And I only have one sponsor, and I've thought about, well, this is working out so great with Chris. Um, 
you know, who else would fit into our little ecosystem here? I didn't give it that much thought, but it did cross my mind. And I came to the conclusion that, you know, I think really one sponsor is enough. Like, I don't want to have to interrupt what I'm doing an hour in and talk about another sponsor or at the end of the show, talk about another sponsor. And for a long time, I didn't do any of this, but I felt it was an organic outgrowth of my friendship and relationship with Chris, that it was a really good fit and a good fit for you. So let me uh, go to Trueham Science and their website. So that you can get some of the ASMR ambient experience of the lush verdant primeval spaces where the world drops away. Great landing page. Anyway, Chris has his uh, website all fixed up, ready to go. And while he was going through some maintenance with the site, he was busy taking orders by phone. And I know uh, a number of you reached out and placed those, or, or those orders by phone. And uh, it's great, right? It's great. We have a number of different ways to stay in touch and communicate with one another. The website obviously being the most convenient. And as I've said before, there are a plethora of products here that can help you stay balanced. And you know, it is a really interesting dynamic to be able to dive into dark waters and then have some equilibrium while you're doing it and come up for air. And I do think CBD can be very helpful to that end, especially when you make it a daily practice. It can help you with inflammation. Uh, it can do very subtle resets in cognitive areas of your life. And there's all kinds of CBD available from CBD that's alcohol-based, non-alcohol-based, uh, topical salves, CBD to wake up, CBD to go to sleep, aka the gummies. So it's all here for you. And if you spend $100 or more and type in 15MINS upon exiting your order, you'll get free stuff, free goodies, which is always good. $150 more, you get free shipping. And just go to truehempscience.com forward slash ref forward slash 23, truehempscience.com forward slash ref forward slash 23, if you're on the audio side of things. And I don't, I don't uh, mention it much, but uh, this show is put out uh, every day when I do it through transistor.fm and is also on iTunes and Google and Podchaser. Hopefully it's on Spotify. Somebody told me that my stream stopped showing up on Spotify. I have to check that out. But there's a number of, of podcast um, distributors that do carry the show just in audio form. And I always leave uh, a podcast player on the site here if you just want to listen. And hopefully live on Rumble, we're there now. 
we're streaming live now. So we're doing our best to keep this thing moving and expanding because honestly, I, I really don't know how much time we're going to have left in order to do this in the way that we're doing it. One of the things that's uh, come out of the World Economic Forum, and they tell you, right, they tell you where things are going. One of the things that's come out of the World Economic Forum is that there is a growing demand to impose more stringent hate speech laws in the United States. We don't really have them. We have hate speech. We have hate crimes. And those started showing up. The classification of a hate crime started showing up in the 2010s. And the, uh, the legislation, the language that Congress passed, used and passed, was drawn up by Abe Foxman of the Anti-Defamation League. And I remember reading this back in the 2010s, and I thought it was utterly disturbing. And it was always one of those things where, well, you know, if you don't commit a hate crime, you're fine. And at, at that time, the definition of a hate crime was both um, quite broad and to some extent vague. But when you have those parameters, it's fairly easy to fill in the blanks where you want. But I knew that this was just the beginning. And it was a very uncomfortable realization that as we move forward, uh, that the definitions of both what a hate crime is or who perpetrates it, and potentially what hate speech is, and who perpetrates it, would become uncomfortably close and that like twins who'd been separated now become conjoined again and the two become a two-headed monster a two-headed beast and those are the those are the murmurs that are coming out of davos here with the sun pluto conjunction so that's why I say that uh, what we're doing here is potentially in peril. And the reason that it's in peril is because of the quantum rate of awakening that's taking place. And there are new wrinkles of awakening, not just the hyper-maximalized, accelerated, generated greenhouse effect of like say QAnon, which was an incubator. It was a mass incubator. And I've talked about this before where baseball moms would all of a sudden be reading about tunnels and kids and adrenochrome and the Federal Reserve. So that was a very florid and 
intense growth period and awakening, albeit a closed loop, right? A closed system that was tied to and attached to these messages that were embedded in code so that people could stay on this um, path of more epiphany, more awakening, but always with this sense that there was a hidden hand behind these events. And it's still, there are still people that um, are engaged in this. And there could be, and I've, I've talked about this before, there seems to be at least two groups on this planet that have been engaged in a battle of wills over the so-called future and plight of humanity. One group deeming humanity to be able to manage its own affairs, more hands-off, more libertarian. The other group demanding that they control the affairs of humanity because humanity cannot control their affairs themselves. And there's plenty of instances of this kind of long-standing conflict between these two groups. So I wouldn't really rule it completely out of the realm of discussion. But for the uh, sake of argument here, as it relates to QAnon, in my estimation, it's a closed loop with the hope that someone or some group will come along and flip everything and turn everything. And again, I'm not saying that there are counter forces in the world. Because frankly, we don't completely know everything. We, we know very little actually. And who knows where we would be 30 years ago, 40 years ago, had there not been some kind of longstanding interference. It's something to think about. But here we are now, and we are on the precipice of some very inconvenient realizations, which I need to articulate today. All right, let me get into uh, who you guys are. And that, of course, is the uh, Chatarian roll call here at the beginning. And let me uh, do a little refresh here. All right, let's see, who do we have? Uh, okay, hold on. Sorry, I had a little messenger. We got my man, Michael. What's happening? Good morning, DJMC. Tomas coming over from Astro Weather. So is Kelly B. Morning again. Hi, Kelly B. Steven Crowder. Uh, great video. And that was one of the videos that really got my attention last night. Really, and I talked about it today a little bit on Astro Weather. Uh, Beth Berry, what's going on? Hi, Double B. There she is, the classy one, Sony. Hi, Sony. Fantastic. CC Jones. Check it in. 
from the deep south. SP Dimples, across the pond, as they say. Welcome, SP. Hucklebuck411, more cowbell. My man, Lyle Coyote. What's going on, brother? I am going to bring you on my show one of these days, Lyle. We're going to do it. When we, when we, when we do our session, I'm going to, we're going to talk about it. 23 Skidoo. What's happening, 23 Skidoo? Think, uh, yeah, more cowbell, Blue Oyster Cult, right? That's the famous more cowbell song. You know what's interesting about Blue Oyster Cult? Buck Dharma sang all their hits. All the big Blue Oyster Cult hits were Buck Dharma. Although I'm not sure, did Eric Bloom sing on Godzilla? Um, think uh, what's going on, Lynn? You know, see, user 13. I always think of the stand with this song now. Yeah. Yeah. It's kind of related, right? I stumbled on an old interview Robert did with Jay Widener from 2010. Delectable stuff and also eerily spot on. You caught me at the beginning, SP. That was one of my first uh, forays forays into podcasting and interviewing with Jay. And, you know, I don't, I don't like to toot my own horn very much, but for people who have been around and following uh, what I've been doing for a while, I, I a lot of this stuff I was talking about in 2010, 2011, 2012, and we're here now, right? I mean, I was talking about these things over a decade ago, and here we are. Thanks for checking that out, SP. SJS. Don't fear the reaper. I think we all have so much to fear these days. I was reading a quote by Edmund Burke. It's a very interesting quote. And the quote was, Edmund Burke's an interesting character too. He has some of the most salient commentary on the French Revolution. And not at all complimentary. But his quote was, if there is something you fear, do everything in your power to learn as much about it so that the fear no longer has hold over you. I thought that was an interesting quote. Kelly coming in with some astrological connection. I wonder if being a Scorpio is part of the reason why I've always loved this song. Kelly, we scored a hit with Kelly B. It's a good day. The theme for the clot shot, Don't Fear the Reaper. Ding, ding, ding. Oh, look who's here amongst us. Maurice Century. Century Maurice. Mr. Key is here. Double K, Catherine Kramer. What's going on, KK? Queen Lisa, salutations. 
Salutations, Queen. Uh, let's see. Who else we have? Kabuki Theater. Davos. Missing many attendees. I think they're having a little secret confab. That's what I think. I think the missing attendees are doing a little deke. Oh, they may be missing, but there's a pretty good chance they're still meeting. Robert floating on an icy fjord as he speaks of the Reaper too much in a good way. Do you like the icy fjord? I'm trying to come up with things that feel inspirational and beautiful, but also synchronistically poignant. Uh, who else do we have? Who else can I welcome? See Pines. Chad. What's up, Chad? There's my man, Steve. His thorness is here. Good to see you, Steve. Uh, let's see. <laughs> Scrubbies, speaking of Scorpio. Welcome, Tamara. Tamara doesn't fear the Reaper. Greta Thunberg, I know, put on a contrived stunt protest and police detention in Germany. You know, it's really interesting. I was watching, um, you guys ever watch Anomaly? I like him. I like Anomaly. Anomaly keeps it real. He's funny, too. And he had this guy on, his name was, I think, Chad Jackson. He was on for Martin Luther King Day. And um, boy, Chad had a rough time staying connected to Anomaly Stream. Monday was a weird day for internet connection. But Chad Chad Jackson really he he and his buddy uh, directed the documentary uh, Uncle Tom and Uncle Tom Two. Chad knows his Martin Luther King shit. He knows his Martin Luther King shit in a big way. The dark side of Martin Luther King. I've noticed, by the way, that Jason Whitlock talks less about Martin Luther King than he had in the past. The education that Jason Whitlock is setting in. By the way, Jason Whitlock did a three-hour show yesterday, the COVID Summit. Three hours. Robert F. Kennedy Jr. was on there. I haven't watched it, but if you're interested in that, you can find that on Jason's channel. But one of the things that uh, Chad Jackson brought up was the power of getting arrested. And he traces it back to the freedom riders that came from the North to take part in the protest uh, of the civil rights marches and movements in the South and the power of them getting arrested and carted, carted off. And hit. it's a, it's an agitprop strategy. It's a total agitprop strategy. That's what they were there to do because movements are built on victims and martyrs. I wonder what Greta will do when she grows up. Porn. 
That's what I think, porn. Greta does Davos. By the way, all the escorts in around Davos, all of them booked weeks in advance of the World Economic Forum. BOC was a wild kind of fantastic light show. Oh, they they pioneered the lasers. Interesting story with Blue Oyster Cult and lasers. Let's see who else. Uh, let's see. I think Greta is a boy. She sure looks like it. And Kyle's a girl. He sure looks like it. East. Hi, East. JMP. What's happening? Pant Jerome. Great day to be alive. Chad has an interesting comment here. It's crazy that you can easily find that petroleum companies fund Greta, the climate change warrior, but it doesn't seem to matter to people. Yeah, that's one of those just little pernicious inconsistencies. I try not to hate on her too much because poor girl, I'm sure she didn't come up with all that activism on her own. No, she was, she's a tool. By the way, Jordan Peterson, for all of his warts, did a very interesting breakdown of the evolution of Greta Thunberg. The backstory is that, you know, her mother is one of these uh, performers, sings opera, you know, dances, dances for Lucifer at CERN. One of those people. So she's, I think she was, I think her mother was um, part of the Eurovision Song Contest at one point. So she's all over the world. She's touring. She's not home. And apparently Greta was not very happy. And Greta went on a hunger strike because her mom wasn't there. She wouldn't eat. So eventually, uh, Greta's petulance wound up bringing her mother back into the fold. And according to uh, Jordan Peterson, Greta's diet composed was composed solely of macaroni in butter, like a butter sauce. And she would literally eat one macaroni shell at a time. That's what Greta's diet was. And she wouldn't eat her little macaroni shells until mom came back. The genesis of Greta. Uh, let's see. They probably all met in their underground bunker. Kelly being the good Scorpio is all over it. Let's see. Who else do we have? We got a link for Jason's show. Primo, what's happening, Christine? Greta and porn. Greta does Davos. There's a story. Uh, there was a time where Greta was 
at one of these um, protests and she was driving an electric vehicle, of course. But the people that are at the protest noticed her car and they looked in her car and there was the remnants of all these junk food containers <laughs> inside of her car. Like Greta had apparently graduated from one shell of macaroni to uh, quarter pounders with cheese and Big Macs and and these people who spied her car and the contents were aghast of what Greta was eating. That tells you everything you need to know about Greta. Uh, spoiled brat, absolutely. 100. Greta is really 35 years old. She's a Capricorn. All right. So let's get into the inconvenient truth. Thank you for your camaraderie, Shataria. I enjoyed that. Let me find the link I'm looking for. I'm just psyched I found a song that Kelly liked today. Okay. So this is a challenging, a bit of a challenging, I wouldn't say like Mount Everest challenging, but challenging in a way where I have to really kind of reconcile things and make decisions where I put my attention based on things that I've enjoyed in the past. And yesterday, um, the Golden State Warriors went to the White House. And this event, and some others I'm, I'm going to talk about here, but this event really disturbed me on a number of levels. Just on a personal level, I grew up in the Bay Area um, watching my first sporting event was going to, at that time, they were called the San Francisco Warriors, and they played in um, Brooks Auditorium. No, it was the San Francisco Civic Center, which I think is adjacent to Brooks Auditorium in Brooks Hall. And that was the first uh, professional sporting event I ever attended. And I believe I was in the third grade. And uh, I was, I didn't feel well that day. I was coming down with a cold. I remember that. But I was so excited to be at the game. And it was a very, very different atmosphere. I remember literally walking down from the stands and having a piece of paper in my hand and they played the Chicago Bulls and I 
passed a piece of paper down the Chicago Bulls bench and they all signed my little piece of paper. So I had, I don't know where that is now, but I had autographs from uh, Norm Van Leer and uh, Bob Love and Chet Walker, Tom Borwinkle, Jerry Sloan. They all signed my little piece of paper. And that just ain't going to happen these days. But that's how user-friendly that whole experience was. Players like Bob Love uh, would have to work in the offseason. And Bob Love, I believe, in the offseason, went into a management program with Nordstrom's. I know he eventually wound up there. But even players had to take side hustles, right? The, the salaries that they made for playing a, a child's game were good, but often not enough to live on throughout the year because they only got paid when they played. So if they weren't getting paid while they played, there was a lot of downtime. So they had to take up other jobs. It kept things honest, right? It kept sports in that kind of semi-rare area of amateur and professional, like doing it for the love of the thing and not necessarily for the money. Because if a person was really smart and got a college education, probably a pretty good chance that they would make more money coming out of college in a fairly quick period of time with the right education than playing an arduous schedule for the NBA or baseball, which did not pay extremely well back then. It was okay, but like I said, you couldn't live on it. So it was really a different time, right? So I grew up watching and, and following the, the Golden State Warriors and some other teams as well. I was, a, I was a big Detroit Piston fan, but I never went to a Pistons game. I went to Warriors games growing up. And they were they were um, losers for a long period of time, run and owned by inept ownership. And that all changed when Joe Lacob purchased the team. Lacob was a minority owner of the Boston Celtics, but he was a big player in Sequoia Capital, a hedge fund. So Joe Lacob had money. And he began to use his money to create a team that's won four NBA championships. And it wasn't just how they won, but the style of play was very unlike um, other teams. When the Warriors uh, were at their best, it was a balletic, a, a balletic synchrony of movement and shooting and passing and timing. It was the equivalent of like Nuriev in a lot of ways on the hardwood. No other team had played basketball like, like those teams. So they were immensely interesting to watch. And they changed basketball too. Um, and that was vis-a-vis -vis Steph Curry and the three-point shot. But along the way, along the way, the Warriors became... a political tool in the arsenal of the cultural revolution. 
I think more than any team in professional sports, the Warriors really embody embody that. And yesterday, and I was always able to um, look the other way as long as it wasn't too pernicious. And the only time it got incredibly pernicious was when there was a mass shooting. And at that point, Steve Kerr, their ultra woke coach, uh, a basketball and ideological disciple of the godfather of woke in the NBA, Greg Popovich, stands front and center on any podium that will give him a mic and shake his fist and stomp his feet to promote gun control. Steve Kerr never misses an opportunity to take a swipe at the so-called Second Amendment. Now, some people might say that Steve Kerr is preternaturally disposed to take that stance since his father, Malcolm, who was a quote-unquote diplomat in Beirut, was shot and killed while Steve Kerr was a teen. They were living there. So you can make a case that Steve Kerr has some skin in the game, but when you add it all up, it doesn't translate. It's a foreign country. There are extremist groups. Who knows who funded what? Who knows what Malcolm Malcolm Kerr was a professor. I, I'm sorry, he wasn't a diplomat. He was a professor. Who knows what Malcolm Kerr was involved with at that time? Was he targeted randomly? Or was he targeted with a specific purpose? I don't know the answer to that. I don't think anybody really does unless you're deep inside the State Department. But that has been the animus that has fueled Steve Kerr's um, ongoing tirade and assault on our Second Amendment rights. Now, what's interesting, I gotta, I'm going to come off of this for a second because I'm talking about Steve Kerr. What's interesting is, I got to find this story. It's, real, it's a really interesting story. Um, let me see if I can do this. Um, what's the guy's name? Okay, yeah. This came out yesterday. And it's a story that really hasn't gotten a lot of attention. But I don't hear Steve Kerr bringing this up. Why? Because it's an inconvenient truth. Alabama basketball player Darius Miles provided gun in fatal shooting, court documents state. Dismissed ba Alabama basketball player Darius Miles, not to be confused with the original Darius Miles, provided the gun but did not pull the trigger. <coughs> In the shoot, fatal shooting 
of 23-year-old Jamea Harris court documents state. In an affidavit provided by Brandon Culpepper of the Tuscaloosa Violent Crimes Unit, Culpepper told the Tuscaloosa County District Court that Miles admitted to providing the gun to alleged shooter Michael Lynn Davis and that Michael Davis struck Harris with a single fatal gunshot as she sat in the passenger seat of a car. So I guess... Um, Jamia Harris was a woman. Darius Miles admitted to providing Michael Davis with the handgun immediately prior to the shooting, a court document states. Miles, 21, was arrested and charged with capital murder after the Sunday shooting. It's pretty fresh. In a Tuscaloosa nightlife district called The Strip near the University of Alabama campus. The shooting took place around 1.45 a.m. Davis, 20, was also charged with capital murder. Both were being held without bond. The capital designation is related to the victim being killed while in a vehicle. According to documents, a capital murder charge carries the possibility of the death sentence in Alabama. So there you go. And it's Darius Miles leaving the Tuscaloosa County Jail right there. Has Steve Kerr chimed in on this? Did he use his opportunity while at the White House taking yet another swipe at the so-called Second Amendment? Did Steve Kerr bring this up? The answer to that is no. That's an inconvenient truth. Here he is. He's got the biggest platform that's ever been given to him. He's at the White House with Joe Biden and Kamala Harris. He could have brought attention to this very case. Is it tragic? I don't know. When things happen consistently, they lose their sense of tragedy. They become commonplace. News events like this are often used as some form of virtue signal if they're glommed on to by the uh, parties that deem them suitable for their political and economic means. But if they're not, they're glossed over, tossed aside, deposited in the dustbin of our recent history. It's not convenient. If Steve Kerr really cared, if he really cared about basketball, basketball players, the type, of, the type of young man that may one day wind up as a Golden State warrior, if not directly, then perhaps metaphorically speaking. He sure had a lot to say about nothing. In fact, he had nothing to say. But instead, he's more than willing to speak in broad terms. general uh, 
talking points of events that have already happened, many of which are suspect and dubious in their uh, both origination and, pardon the pun, execution. It's only part of it. But I wanted to bring that up because it's an important part. I wonder if Jason Whitlock will talk about this today. Also, th there was a shooting at the University of Virginia, four players dead, also called Black African-American, killed by another so-called Black African-American. I don't remember Steve Kerr talking about that. That's just one layer. I got more. Starts with Steve Kerr. Then it moves into Stephen Curry. And Stephen Curry is one of the most tremendous um, talents athletically, not gifted with great athleticism. He can't jump out of a gym. But his ability to shoot a basketball from 30 to 35 feet changed the landscape of the NBA. Not everybody can do that. And Curry's a Pisces, and there's always been this kind of underlying Piscean calm about him. And if I were to wipe away a lot of the, the what I would call programming and his social justice talking points, of which there are many, 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 I could make a case for Steph Curry being a very organic and natural spiritual being that could express himself at a fairly high level. But he's a Pisces, no offense to any Pisces. Uh, he's a Pisces and he, I think, is deluded. And I think that there are people in his life who are handling him in this diluted state and so he comes out with the uh the rote talking points of the social justice progressive woke culture he stood up for Brittany Griner but he had nothing to say for the other American that was still there stranded in a Russian jail only Brittany Griner matter to Steph Curry. And his politics are naive. They're, they're, the, they're the politics and the political expression. You can just tell of somebody who has not really thought very deeply about things. There's always the case that perhaps somewhere he made a deal, and this is just all part of the deal. Or perhaps in his um, Piscean state of being, he's just going with the flow. But it's a huge disappointment. And he plays for the Warriors. Don't even get me started with Draymond Green, who at the beginning of the season sucker punched one of his teammates in one of the most savage acts of 
premeditated brutality and assault I've ever seen in sports. Something that would be done by someone who is fairly sociopathic. And then on the flip side of that, on the backside, once the video had been exposed, he never really displayed any true contrition. He did his best to take some level of accountability, but it wasn't going to stop him. Nothing happened to him. He was not suspended. He was not punished. He was enabled. And Steve Kerr doesn't see the irony of that at all. He doesn't see the, the irony in the enabling of a microcosm of what we could call black-on-black -black crime because the person that he hit was another so-called black African-American. And maybe that's why Steve Kerr has nothing to say about Darius Miles and what happened in Alabama over the weekend. So, I'm, I, and I've seen these people and I've known these people that have been drinking the Kool-Aid for a while. And it's, all, it's always been somewhat palatable because of the team that I grew up with. And, you know, I took my son to uh, a Warriors game. He has fond memories of it, very young. Right? And the only time that the inconvenient part for me would show up is when there would be a mass shooting. And then, of course, Steve Kerr would start spouting his woke nonsense, and then I would, you know, get pissed off and wish I was in the same room with him to give him something else to think about, ask him questions that may be inconvenient for him. But then that would pass, and I would go back into my... Uh, ambient relationship with the Golden State Warriors. By the way, I don't watch pro sports, but I will watch the highlights. Condensed. Yesterday, and the visit to the White House, I think, changed all of that for me. Now I'm going to get into this. There's a bigger piece here that this is going to lead to. I'm not doing that. Awkward moment. Kamala refuses to kneel with Biden for photo with the Golden State Warriors after President bungled her name. VP Kamala Harris refused to take a knee with President Joe Biden Tuesday, happened at a photo op with the reigning NBA champion Golden State Warriors. Harris laughed, I'm not doing that when Biden went to a kneeling position. Awkward exchange caused laughter from the team and shock from the crowd. During remarks earlier, Biden mispronounced his number two's first name. Referred to VP Kamala Harris as Kamala rather than the correct Kamala. 
Tom Combe. Tom Combe. Jesus. President Biden wanted to wrap up his appearance with the NBA champion Golden State Warriors on Tuesday by taking a knee with Vice President Kamala Harris. But she refused and chuckled, I'm not doing that, leaving the 80-year-old on the front stage, on the front of the stage on his own in an awkward end to the photo op. The gesture from the president was met with laughter from the team and sounds of shock from the audience, including his number two, who didn't want to join in on the kneeling position that became popular with athletes during Black Lives Matter. The entire ordeal was perplexing as panic-stricken players reached their arms out to help the president up when it appeared he almost fell. But Biden was only pretending to struggle and landed in what he thought was an athletic pose with a smirk. Earlier in the event, Biden also fumbled by seeming to forget Harris's first name, calling her Kamala, rather than the pronunciation of Kamala. This is fucking ridiculous. Look at the photo. What are they telling you here? listening to the radio it's joe biden on one knee looking at kamala harris i want to refer to the new hate speech laws if i mispronounce her name that would be considered hate speech so um here's the video i haven't seen the video how long is it 38 seconds um i'm not sure i even want to watch it So here's the photo op with the team. Of course, Biden looking like a clown. That's all intentional and on purpose. The Warriors and their staff. And here's a very interesting uh, photo that um, here. Let's uh, let's play the let's play this. This is the, uh, let me make sure I have the audio hooked up. This is where he fucks up her name. Kamala, thank you very much. Uh, <clears throat> feels like a war or home game. And uh, there's the toughest ticket in town. And this has been a tough ticket to get in town. Nancy Pelosi, where are you, Nancy? Nancy. <laughs> Greatest speaker in our history, and this is her home court right here. <laughs> Folks, it's so wonderful to be here. Paul, good to see you, Paul. Paul Pelosi. This case went away, right? With the guy. There's several other members of the California delegation here, are also here, along with several city and state leaders. But as Kamala said, we're uh, we're all closely monitoring the storm. Mm, floods, look at that look! All across California, and our heart is with all of the Camilla. families, all the families in the communities that are hurting, and all the brave and historic and heroic first responders. Working closely with Governor Newsom, I'm in constant contact with, 
Everything's a fucking emergency now, isn't it? All the water, the flooding, terrible. It's always a crisis. And the entire delegation, I issued a disaster declaration to support recovery and to rebuild. And I'll be traveling to California on Thursday to assess the damage and see uh, what additional support may be needed. Difficult moments like this remind us that uh, we are one America. We're one America. And folks, I know the team we're honoring today understands what it takes to work together. Let me just say that uh, the Golden State Warriors are always welcome in this White House. In this White House, not anybody else's White House, because they sure as hell didn't show up when Trump was president. Kamala, not Kamala. So this is the photo that really grabbed my attention. None of this is by happenstance. None of it. So if you're listening on the radio or on the, on the podcast side of things, the Golden State Warriors gave Biden a jersey with his last name on it and the number 46 because theoretically he's the 46th president. Meanwhile, they gave Harris a jersey with the number one on it. Maybe they should have uh, put 47 instead. But it's interesting because in terms of hierarchy, think of the uh, symbolism there. And even Biden kneeling to Harris. So they're, they're showing you, right? They're showing you ultimately what is going to happen. It's just a matter of when. This is only part of the inconvenient truth. It's all about using every tool in the kit to advance the propaganda. So what is the propaganda? This leads me back into sports yet again for another example of, I guess you could call it a case that I'm building. And this seems like a fairly uh, inconsequential story in some ways, but in other ways it's not, and it typifies a tectonic social change that has very deep reverberations for the future. So this story came across uh, the wire yesterday. Seems like a relatively inconsequential and perhaps trite story on its face. But when you dig down deeper, you can begin to see the social ramifications. Tennessee Titans named Rand Carthon, top 49ers exec, as new GM. 
So that means that uh, this football team has hired Rand Carthon to be the new general manager. Congratulations. Congratulations on the job. The Titans have hired Rand Carthon, the San Francisco 49ers director of player personnel, as their new man general manager. The Titans announced the hiring Wednesday. Carthon received interviewed for the job Friday with a panel of Titans executives, including controlling owner Amy Adams Strunk. He brings 15 years of experience to the Titans. We're excited to add Rand to our organization as our new general manager, Adam Strunk said in a statement released by the team. He brings a variety of valuable experiences to our team as a former player and a successful personnel director, uh, executive for most multiple teams. I was impressed with his natural leadership qualities and his ability to connect with people. The talent evaluation being critical in this role, the roster they have built in San Francisco stands out. He played an important role there constructing one of our league's best teams. During his tenure in San Francisco, Carthon served as the director of pro personnel for five seasons with the 49ers before being elevated to director of player personnel two seasons ago. That's not the important part. This is the important part. The 49ers will receive compensatory third round selections in the next two drafts as part of the Rooney Rule incentives for teams to develop minority head coach and GM candidates. So let me explain that to you. The National Football League has had in place for a long time um, a theoretically well-meaning but rather insulting rule called the Rooney Rule, which was put into effect by Art Rooney, uh, the owner of the Pittsburgh Steelers. And ultimately, I believe it was suggested by Bill Walsh of the 49ers and Bill Walsh was never shy about hiring quote unquote minority candidates. He was, he would hire a minority candidate if they were good candidates. He didn't have a problem with it. So Walsh was able to um, practice a type of uh, merit, merit, meritocratic diversity. And there's nothing wrong with a meritocratic diversity. But Walsh and the league believed that, well, the league needed more diversity at higher positions throughout the league, mostly coaching at that time is all coaching. So if you were uh, a team that wanted to hire a coach, you had to hire, you had to have an interview with at least one so-called minority candidate. And if you were a so-called minority candidate and you knew that that team was going to hire somebody else because you were just there to show up, to check a box, to uh, meet a quota in some regards, it's fucking insulting, pardon my language, but it's, it would be insulting. If I was that person, I'd be like, look, between me and you and the fence post, I kind of know why I'm here. and. In spite of all that, I'm going to give you my best interview. And hopefully, I'm going to change your mind about who or what you're looking for. That's the attitude you would have to take. Make it more difficult for them to make a choice. But most of these teams would just do this because 
it was required of them. And there would be uh, some people that would advocate this process because, well, it give them practice on the interviewing process. It'd be good for them. Some of these guys have done it multiple times. How much more practice do you need? And it, whether or not it's successful can be debated, but there have been a number of quote unquote black coaches or even minority coaches. If you want to include Ron Rivera and Robert Sala in the national football league, some have been successful. Some haven't just like other coaches who don't fit into that category. But the new wrinkle now is that teams are being incentivized so that if they have somebody who is a minority or a person of color who leaves their organization for a job in another organization that is not lateral, but for all intents and purposes is a promotion, those teams will get compensated for that person that they hired and then allowed to leave that team with the idea that the teams would then look for other minority candidates so that they could benefit from their departure. In some places, they would call this social engineering. Now, if I were the 49ers and this rule was in place, why would I settle for the league's two third-round draft choices? If I were the 49ers, and now we're having player compensation for either coaching or executive movement, why wouldn't they say to the Titans, we're not going to let you talk to him. We like him. But if you do want to talk to him, we're going to have to strike up a different deal. We don't like the deal that the league has made. If you hire him, we want more than just two third round league allotted choices. We want a second round choice for you. And we want a player. Like, if you really want to play the game, play the game, right? Play the game. But they would never do that because it's all top-down. It's all hierarchical. It's what the league is offering. But there's a problem to this. And it's not just – and I'm not saying that Rand Carthon is not a qualified person. He might be eminently qualified. He might be the best hire for that team. But let's not beat around the bush and, and try to um, make this sound like, you know, we're just two steps away from it's a small world after all. Amy Strunk Adams is hiring Rand Carthen probably because she thinks he's a good candidate. And it doesn't hurt that he checks the box of a particular demographic. They don't lose the draft choices. The league will give it to him at the end of the third round. 
here you go. Here's your draft choices. Courtesy of us, right? So one team gets to look better in terms of their ESG profile. The other team benefits from the fact that they had this person in their employee and now they get something back from it, right? So what does that do? It changes the system. And if you're a team, you're thinking, wow, gee, look what the, look what the uh, 49ers are doing. Yeah, let's get, let's get more candidates like that so that when they leave, we get something back. And then what does that do? It excludes other candidates. So here's where the truth gets really inconvenient. And I may even follow this up tomorrow. But I want you to pay attention. When I go back here to this story, Tennessee Titans named Rand Carthon, top 49ers exec, as new GM. So we have Teron Davenport, who is covering the story for ESPN. And then you have Rand Carthon, who is being hired as the new GM for the Tennessee Titans. And again, my, um, my commentary here is not one meant to be exclusionary. And it's not meant to sound xenophobic or even borderline, quote unquote, racist. Because I think there are much deeper, longer reaching ramifications, even for the so-called Black American community. But what we're witnessing here is the whiteout of North America, Europe, and the West. This is exactly what's happening. And a lot of people don't want to talk about it. It will raise hackles. Um, you'll lose listeners or viewers, right? But where I'm going with this, it's not race or color specific. So just hang in there with me for a minute because it's going to affect everybody. So this is the cultural march on our institutions, cultural Marxism. And you look at this in relationship to what's happening in the United Kingdom, in England. And by the way, they have come out in the UK and clearly stated that population is a problem. Um, and what are they? They're not calling it the great replacement. They're calling it the great replenishment. Coming right out and saying that this is what they're doing. But they're bringing thousands of quote unquote refugees 
from places like Afghanistan, Libya, Pakistan, Iraq, Somalia, Mali, right? This is all taking place now. And it's all over Europe. It's been going on since the 2010s. Every day, every week, every month. So in essence, what they're doing is they're rewriting the gene pool of Europe. And to some extent, in the U.S. as well. Now, if you are somebody who is so-called Black African-American, you need to pay attention to this. Because ultimately, even your identity and your roots and your family are at risk. Because the idea ultimately is to create one planetary polygot species. That's the ultimate goal. And it starts with one group, but eventually, eventually it all melds into a manifestation of a group of individuals who have no social or ethnic or cultural historical roots or story, whatever they are. And I've talked about this years ago. And it's really coming to fruition. So for now, right, one group is being erased and blotted out of history. Yesterday, I talked about um, my friend Richard and his, and his publishing company. Whatever you think of Richard or his politics or his upbringing or whatever. I had some interesting comments. I had somebody on uh, Twitter say that uh, he deserved it. All the boomers deserved it. And that the millennials are furious. That all they have left is a rotting, stinking corpse of a country that was picked over by the boomers. They deserve it. Maybe they do. Maybe they do. I don't know. I know that in a lot of ways, Richard was incredibly naive, thinking that you know the next generation would have the same kind of values that he did, and not only that, but they can improve upon the values that he had, and that's not true. And then when it came time to potentially look for allies, people that might be able to help, those were people that I believe Richard found distasteful in a lot of ways that he could never um, begin to think about forming an alliance with somebody that didn't fit into a particular demographic. Although if somebody was in that world, he might be kind of capable of it in some ways. That's part of that story. And I think it has less to do with uh, boomers and millennials than it does with people who are of a particular socioeconomic ilk, what I would call the uh, the elite literati of the uh, progressive movement of the 70s and 60s and 70s, and to some extent the 80s. 
They didn't see it coming. And I think it was with the same kind of uh, innocence, naivete, and sense of exploration that helped build his press. But ultimately, it was, it was his undoing. And that's an example. It may be an extreme example, but it's an example. And what happened to those books? They're pulped. They're gone. They're no longer there. And every day now, the message that we're being hit over the head with via mainstream media and to some extent alternative media, that there is one group that is responsible for the ills of the planet. I'm going to extend this a little bit. Let's add it in a few minutes. One group and one group only responsible for slavery, colonialism, poverty, inequality. And if this one group was just eradicated, all those things would go away. They'd all go away. In we're well on our way towards that outcome. I could see into the future, history books, movies, and the picture that they would paint of a people, a group, and a culture that is historically now despised. A lesson as to how not to be. And the remnants of that culture that remain and survive would be the most egregious, distasteful, and in many instances, embellished aspects of that culture in its most negative manifestations. And you think I'm being hyperbolic, I'm not at all. Now, one group in the immediate clearly will benefit from this. In San Francisco, they're talking about reparations, large sums of money. That is a discussion that is not going to go away. It's going to get bigger. It's going to get louder. And then what? What comes after that? Did you know houses, owning a home? That's the ultimate symbol of privilege. You got to give those up. You got to give that home up. And you should be thankful that you give it up. Because it allows you to understand who you are and were at a much deeper level. And atone for the sins of your forefathers. Don't think that that moment is not in the event horizon. 
In the immediate, one group will benefit from this. In the future, that won't be the case. Because all we have to look to is what's happening with not just the social engineering on a psychological level, the social engineering on a biological level, and that the group who would benefit the most from a cultural sea change will then be in the crosshairs of losing their own identity. Because this is how things are being engineered. Until there's no one with an identity, that everybody is some form of a genetic orphan with no mooring, no connection, no ties to anything that represents a relevant part of their culture, for better or worse. That's where it's all going. That's where it's all going. And it makes me um, kind of melancholy to think about this because it's all at risk. Whether you're white or black or brown, there will come a point in time in the not so distant future where it won't matter. that there'll be new stories and new myths and new religions for new people who have no idea where they came from. It's kind of a mutation on the orphan trains in some ways. Who needs the orphan trains when you are able to, in real time, systematically re-edit the gene pool while at the same time re-edit the historical context of a number of different groups. So this is the inconvenient truth that a lot of people don't want to face or talk about. And then when you look at Davos to bring it all the way back at the beginning, the murmurings of making hate speech laws in the United States de facto, these discussions will not be allowed to happen. They'll be considered thought crimes and crimes against the state. It's getting very close. We have no idea how close it's, it's, we are to that. And I remember when um, the algorithms really started to kick in with YouTube and Twitter, and, and I thought to myself, you know what? Fuck that right? All I need to do is make content, do it consistently, and hope that what I do connects with people and that they'll find me. It's getting harder and harder to do even that. So I don't have the answer. And I, and I, and I said that I, you know, would try to leave you in a place that's a little more positive, than the negative picture I'm painting. I think the positive piece around this is that 
there are people that are waking up and they're waking up on both sides of the equation. You know, I watch Jason Whitlock fairly frequently and, you know, I'll dive into um, his chat sometimes. I won't really post anything. I'll just watch what people are saying. And I can clearly see that he's representative of a demographic that's waking up. On the other side, I talked about the Steven Crowder video, 25 minutes of him fucking waking up and realizing who runs the space. He's not at uh, yay level, uh, connect the dots, but he's close. So you have these two entities, right? So people are waking up and they're understanding that there's more commonality in a lot of ways. You know, I, I talked about uh, Muhammad Ali yesterday on Astro Weather. And Ali, for all intents and purposes, was a separatist. And he didn't, he didn't care what people thought. He said, um, I don't want to date no white woman. So why would I, why would I want to have a child that doesn't look like me? He said that on an English talk show. And this, the, the, the host, the, the presenter nearly had a fucking, pardon my language. I'm trying to watch my swearing seizure. Notley defended it. His message is an antiquated one. Just watch commercials. Watch the programming with commercials. It's all part of a systemic network of social engineering. Right down to Steph Curry's wife, Aisha, who is a polyglot. She is a walking, talking polyglot of diversity. And even Steph is too. And their offspring is even more of a polyglot. Who's standing right next to Kamala Harris at the White House? Pamela. The positive piece is that the clock is ticking and people are waking up. The asterisk or the caveat in the time of Capricorn, the season of the scythe, is do we have enough time? That's really the question. We'll find out. Thanks for being here. Use your head in order to discern what's real, your heart to step what's possible. I'm Robert Phoenix. I'll be back here tomorrow. Take care. Have a blessed day.